On this episode of NC Raw, we welcome Jeremy French, the director of Making Whole, an addiction recovery process and program that's new to the Asheville area. Uh, It works with the framework of like a traditional type of apprenticeship where they bring on apprentices and kind of teach them a trade, teach them how to build and manufacture uh, all sorts of things and also teach them like relational and life skills. It's It's a super innovative approach to addiction and to the recovery process. And I thoroughly enjoy talking with Jeremy. This dude is super brilliant. Um, I just, I was in awe in talking to the guy. So, uh, I hope you guys enjoy the interview. He's, he's a great cat. Give him some love. Check out his website, makinghole.com. Um, he threw out some invites for folks to come out and have lunch with him. They do like a daily lunch every day. Uh, where he invites the community out just to come and hang out and see what they're doing. So give him some love, support what he's doing. We're broadcasting again tonight from the Comfort Inn Studios in Silva, North Carolina. Winter is just around the corner. It's been a little chilly over the last couple days here. Go ahead and uh, contact, contact the Comfort Inn if anybody's coming to visit. These guys are recovery allies. They provide the space for us to record each each episode every week. So uh, if you're in the area, give them some love. Even if you're not staying here, just come in and say hello and thank them for being a recovery ally and thank them for supporting us. So with that being said, give it up for my man, Jeremy French. Individual, living the miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible. Totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal, but things have changed in my life. It's going through different intervals. Finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance. Is that acceptable? I give the rival expected to be exceptional And I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional I am incredible, Leo conventional And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Let's go. Jeremy French. Hello, world. Welcome to the NC Raw podcast, bro. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking me up on the offer. And uh, coming to the table and talking with us. My man Caleb could not make it tonight. He is out in Raleigh participating in recovery coach training. 
And I don't exactly know what he's doing out there, but I know he's going to be, when he comes back, he's going to be a certified recovery coach. So what is that? I don't really know. I think it's some, from what I understand, cause they did it over here at Western last semester and it's very similar to peer support. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only big difference that I understand from peer support and recovery coach is a peer support specialist is a person in long-term recovery. A recovery coach can be open to anybody gotcha. outside of the realm of, outside of the realm of, uh, of recovery experience or addiction experience. So, cool. um, what making whole, making whole, you're the director and founder yeah. of making whole. Um, my, my official title is chief bonobo, chief bonobo. That's right. Tell me what that means. Uh, bonobo is a slightly more intelligent than other monkey. Uh-huh. I think is how it goes. Do know? Yeah, there's there's uh, it's an interesting creature, and and part of the reason why I've been uh, been on a bonobo kick is that there's a guy that did these studies about these these monkeys, and what he did is that he had a bunch of monkeys in cages lined up, and the monkeys would perform a task, and all the monkeys would get a cucumber. And these bonobos are fond of cucumbers. And so all the bonobos were happy bonobos because they did their duties and they got a cucumber. And then one day he gave all the bonobos a cucumber, except one of them he gave a grape. Okay. And as I recall the study, the other bonobos were like confused, but they took the cucumber. Uh-huh. And they were confused because bonobos really like grapes. And so the next time it happened, same thing, these bonobos get cucumbers the other bonobo gets a grape, and then the bonobos get pissed off. And they start throwing their cucumbers back at the, the guy who's conducting the study. And the whole premise of the study is that this idea of fairness is, is not just unique to humans. Is that uh, That's somewhere deep down inside of us, that we want a fair deal. And it doesn't matter if we're getting good stuff, we want to get fair stuff. Yeah. So that, that study was on my mind. So you're the director of Making Whole, providing fair stuff. Yeah, I don't even know if that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's uh, uh, sometimes I suppose it's a little unfair. But that's early recovery is a little. It's an unfair feeling experience, even if you're doing it right. What what is it? What is it that making whole does? Right, like what what is the um, I don't so know, the mission ba- statement? What do you guys like? So making whole is an apprenticeship program. Uh huh. So men come to learn how to build furniture and architectural objects. That's, that's the premise. And so in that regard, it's a bit like vocational rehab in the sense that people are learning a skill set, um, learning how to build something, learning how to work with their hands, learning how to problem solve. Um, and the other element of that is something a little bit more like Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi where people are learning how to be in their own skin over the course of a day, learning how to... Uh, solve the problems that they, they get faced with in, in an environment where they're being supported, in an environment where the people who, myself and the other guys who are there, are, um, are there with the mission of helping people get through this sort of hurdle of the first year recovery and um, the hurdle of not really knowing how to deal with life. You know, So um, certainly my experience in recovery is, is the first year I felt like a raw nerve. You know, Like we were just talking about, I you know, this idea that I had to give up, drugs were a medicine for me. That was the one thing that made me feel whole. You know, up to that point in my life, really the only thing that ever worked um, and was effective. And so I gave up my only medicine, and here I am, this raw nerve, and I don't know how to 
deal with life and it's terribly uncomfortable and I've got no real life skills and how do I navigate that experience, you know? And so there's a couple of different components of that. One of them is getting a skill set to deal with the basic problems that life presents. Um, and then the other part of that is learning how to be in my own skin through that process. You know, those are kind of two different things. And so, you know, it's one thing to go to school and learn a, learn a skill, but being walking around in a community of people who are not going through what you're going through, feeling like a raw nerve is a terrible experience. And so we're trying to provide both the skill set learning how to solve problems at the same time, having a level of support um, and intimacy in that support so that people feel comfortable being kind of being coming as they are, so to yeah. speak. Um, it's a pretty innovative approach these days. It, these days, I suppose it is. You know, I, I think about, so part of where this was, where this came from is that when I got sober, there was a, the man who ran the halfway house where I got sober was a real old school guy from Boston Big guy, big presence, big energy, and uh, he was old school. He was old school um, AA guy. Got sober in 1969 and kind of came with a lot of grit, but he was like he was like a guy from a previous era. And so one of the things that he was he was in the later part of his career um, when I was there when we were working together, and he had started exploring how creativity um, played a role in people's recovery and how it could like effectively enhance somebody's recovery experience. And he was reading books and he was trying different things in his halfway house where encouraging people to play music and do art and stuff like this, but he couldn't really put his finger on where the value of the creative process was. He just knew that there was something there. And so he was, he passed away maybe in the early 2000s. I went and saw him before he passed away and we were having this conversation, just casual conversation. And like halfway through this conversation, his eyes got real big and said, Jeremy French, you're going to carry on my legacy. <laughs> I had no idea what he was carrying on about. And it wasn't like part of the conversation. This guy was a little crazy like this. It wasn't part of the conversation we were having. And then it's like we snapped back into the conversation. It was like I was having a, a, a flashback, a trip or something. I had no idea what he was talking about. So years later, I'm at a point in my professional life and in my personal life, and I'm getting to a point where I'm losing friends, where I started asking myself the question, what is it? Why don't people get better? What is missing? And, and more importantly, like what works for people? Why am I better? Why am I in the space that I'm in? Why do the handful of people, just a small group of people that I know over 15, 20 years, what, what is it that's the common denominator in all these different people? Um, and there was some creative element in, in their lives outside of their recovery. You know, it was their profession or it was their hobby or something where it had kind of taken them over, where they could go create. And, and bring something new into the world. And whether that was through a podcast or, you know, a craft of some type or through music or through, you know, parenting. You know, there's a lot of people who take up parenting, which is can be a real creative enterprise. Um, they, they kind of in, step both feet into that project, whatever it was. And virtually everybody I knew who had long-term sustainable recovery, something that I would want to have some part in, um, all had this sort of common thread. And so I think that that's, I think that there's a value in that that's um, perhaps um, missed. Now, so that's one part of it. I think that that's a common denominator in the people who I know who've gotten better. The other thing is when I look back to the old world, you know, um, one of the things that I was introduced to early on was uh, Joseph Campbell and Robert Blythe and these people who were talking about 
the sort of transition of being a man and, and the transition out of childhood um, and the ritual that's connected to that that's not really present in our culture today. Um, when you look back to these old ways of how do you become a man, it typically had something to do with people who had been there before giving you <clears throat> a rite of passage <clears throat> that was methodical. It was kind of pre-prescribed for you. It was this methodical thing that connected you to all the people who had come before you and gave you a reason to be a part of a community. That most basic um, rite of passage was part of all the old cultures. It's how you became an adult. Mm -hmm. And so we're missing that. And so in a respect, this is a new approach. And in another respect, this is like, this is the oldest approach of like, how do you reintroduce yourself to a community? How do you become introduced to the world as an adult? There's a process that takes place, and, and that's kind of what I'm targeting, is to give people that opportunity. How did you get introduced to the world? You've uh, been doing this, I mean, you've been doing this type of the skill for a while, right? So part of the reason I wanted to do this is that my introduction was spotty, and it took place over a really long time. I think longer than it needed to take. Um, because I didn't have anybody that came and, and said, walk this way. Figuring it out on your own. Yeah, there was a lot of like piecing together. Like um, Tom, who's the guy that ran this halfway house, you know, taking some of the little pieces that he had for me and, and trying to make some of that, trying to make sense out of this sort of code, this sort of riddle in a sense, you know. And then going to the next guy who I would... Um, and I kind of followed... Um, I, I always had somebody in my life who I was looking towards and saying, I want to be like that person, you know, and, and sometimes without them even knowing it, like I, I watched everything that they did like a hawk and tried to piece it together until um, I kind of got to a point where, where um, I just found myself, um, I guess first I found myself beat up enough to where I got really willing to do the sort of hard work of the rite of passage. Um, and I found a process with people who are willing to take me through that, um, you know, a lot of years sober at that point. And I don't know that there was a really clean transition into that, you know. It's interesting, one of the stories that, that Joseph Campbell tells is about, I think it's an Aboriginal tribe from Australia where all the boys get, you know, they go out in the woods for a couple of days and at the end of their days, you know, this is when you're going to be a man, they're sitting around the fire telling a story about their, you know, some of their ancestors or their God or whatever it is that they're talking about. Talking about the story of this guy and about how he loses a tooth in battle or something along those lines. And during this time, the elders go around and knock a tooth out of every one of these kids' mouths, mm -hmm. which is, that's, like, that's hardcore, mm -hmm. you know. That's, like, definitely putting you in jail if yeah. you're doing that in Silva. <laughs> and what's interesting about it is there's two things that physically connects you to your ancestors, you feel around in your mouth and you're missing a tooth. Mm -hmm. But it's also bloody and painful and difficult and frightening and all those things. And I experienced my transition over a period of a number of years, but it was that same thing. It was painful, it was difficult. At the end of it, the mark of that connected to the connected me to the people that had come before me and kind of gave me enough belief um, to kind of get me through some of the difficult times that came later. Mm -hmm. You know, because my transition, like the transition is not... Um, your life sucks and then you go through this process and then everything's good. You know, it's like, I'm not prepared for the world. Here's your preparation. Now you got to go do it. Figure it out. Now is when the work begins, yeah. you know, and 
and learning how to live as a as a man means learning how to live with integrity, um, learning how to do the right thing, learning how to show up for things that you want to show up for. It's not, it's not all about me anymore, you know, which is what being a kid is like. You know, it's all about me. But did recovery teach you that <clears throat> or did becoming well, I, a man I, teach you that? I, I can't I can't really separate those two things. Yeah. Like I don't visually one of the things the longer I've been sober, um, the more the dialogue of recovery doesn't make sense to me. In the sense of like there's not a recovery part of my life and a life part of my life. Mm-hmm. There's yeah, not yeah. a recovery part of my life and a professional part of my life, or a recovery part of my life, and a, and part of the reason why is because my the recovery is my nu- that's my nucleus, which is like basically being a man, having a, a spiritual experience. Um, that's the core that everything else resonates from. So it's hard to separate, you know, being a man from going through recovery. You know, I basically had to learn how to not be a self-centered prick. Yeah. You know, which is recovery. That's it's like also the, being a man. That's like the hardest part for so many of us, though. Well, it is. No, that is. I mean, it was the hardest part for me. It still is. You know, there's still times where um, I'd rather sit down on the couch than, you know, fulfill the obligations that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly still in me. You know, luckily, I have enough practice in my life of showing up to where I just do it in, in spite of myself sometimes. But it's still not easy. It's still not something that... Um, is always fluid for me, yeah. you know, but at this point I'm practiced enough and I kind of, you know, my wife will get on my case enough. If you're watching, darling. <laughs> I'm sure she is. <laughs> I'm sure she's not. <laughs> nah. she's, see right now I'm, I'm, I'm getting to be famous on a, on a, a radio show and she's doing all the hard work at home. So uh-huh. picking, this up, is a picking little, up your slack. I, I'm telling you, I'm a little bit like the, uh, you know, the retired man that's like just sitting back, taking all the glory while she's like, you know, doing the, the tough duties. Like mm-hmm. I've got the easy job tonight. Yeah. What, uh, how long have you been doing this mm-hmm. trade? How long have you been? So I, uh, I started the first business I started, I was, uh, I suppose was 19, 19 1999. So I would have been, you know, I was in my early twenties, maybe 1998. So I was 21 years old. And that sounds really noble, like, God, you know, young guy starting his own business. And it was strictly because I was completely unemployable. And so if you're unemployable, you either, you know, become homeless or you start your own business. So that's what I did. And uh, that was in landscaping. And that kind of evolved. You know, the landscaping became more of an architectural thing um, until the point where I was in the studio environment, which was about 2003. Why were you unemployable? Because I didn't have skills that employees yeah. need to be useful. <laughs> but you found recovery at an early age. I did, yeah. I was real young. I was uh, I was in bad shape at a real young age. Mm-hmm. Where are you from? From Atlanta. Atlanta. ATL. Moved up to the mounds. That's right. So I, I, I was living in Atlanta and um, got thrown in jail in a different state and uh, ended up in a treatment center in the mountains. So I, I got sober in North Georgia in a real, pretty rural area and... Uh, by 1998 when I'm, is when I moved to Asheville, I kind of got to a point where um, where I got sober, I was really a kid. You know, and everything I did was real, like, um, erratic and impulsive, and I made a lot of poor choices during that era of my life. And I kind of, in a really small community, it's hard to be somebody other than what you've always been. You know, people mm-hmm. around the community will always know you yeah. is that guy that did that dumb thing. Yeah. And so I knew that... Um, I needed to be somewhere else to kind of recreate myself and be an adult, um, which I wasn't there. 
Yeah, and I knew I, that needed to be in a, a larger environment, more of a city environment, but I didn't want to move back to a city like Atlanta. So I ended up in Asheville in 1998. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> something that's definitely evident in this small community here. Right. I meet, I meet folks all the time, whether they're coming through um, campus, inquiring on, you know, getting into school and a lot of stuff that my co-host Caleb's even dealing with. He's overcome so much. Right. In a short period of time, like 18 months. Right. Um, and he's overcome so much. But in talking with people, it's always, oh, that's Caleb. That's, he's right. the one that did blank, blank, blank. Right. And no. people don't really believe that people yeah. change. There's mm-hmm. there's a general consensus that people don't change. Yeah. And so it's really hard, especially in a small community, to overcome change. And look, a lot of the things I did were treacherous. Yeah. You know, even sober. You know, I made some really, really poor choices early yeah. on. And those are choices that, like, you know, they're not easily forgotten. Yeah. You know, they're not easily forgiven. They're certainly not easily forgotten. Yeah. And so it was easier for me at that point in my life to, you know, and I was at a place where I wanted to change. I was ready to shift. And so I could come to a new place and be an adult, you know, and, th- and that's, there was an element of that move that certainly helped propel me um, in, into growing up. Yeah. For me though, I think <laughs> that like, what you just described a part of that is just like figuring it out like that's living you know that's life right right we make poor decisions right um especially when we're 17 and like our community society like doesn't teaches us and teaches the people that we interact with you know that we shouldn't be forgiven i was having this conversation today in class um Somehow the the convert uh, we're our work based learning, which is a um, which is like our internship type class. We're doing like a little book review on how to be a team player. Mm-hmm. There's three qualities that the author describes um, to be the ultimate team player. You got to be humble. Number one, if you're not humble, you can't go any further. Humble. You got to be hungry, and you got to be people smart. And so the teacher um, gave us a, there's like a little survey at the end of the book where self-evaluation, you do mm-hmm. the self-evaluation and we, all, we, each of us identified which category we were, um, could use improvement in, which one, which one was our lowest ranking category based off of this self-evaluation. And we were tasked to, last, last Monday, we were tasked to go out and intentionally do something that would improve that skill set. Interesting. Whatever it is, whatever it may or may not be. Um, And oddly enough, like the consensus of the students in the class, like the majority of them, some were humble, some were hungry, but the consensus, I mean, I'm sorry, some were smart, some were hungry, but Mm -hmm. the consensus was the majority of us were not humble. Right. And one of the... um, characteristics that many of them myself included probably lost points on was like um i i i offer and ask for forgiveness regularly interesting um that was one of the the lowest quality so we came back today to kind of talk about what we did last week Right. right and so a few of the the girls in the class were like well um i was trying to work on offering and asking for forgiveness, but, and it always, it was always like, yeah, I had this, uh, this, this, um, incident with my mom and, you know, 
she was she was hurt. Her feelings were hurt or she was upset by what I did, but I didn't think that I was wrong. So I didn't think that I needed to wow. ask her for forgiveness. And I was like, well, you know, think about it. Like, should you ask for forgiveness if you harmed somebody, if, if your actions, whether you intended for them or not, if your actions caused another person harm, why wouldn't you ask them for forgiveness? Why wouldn't you offer forgiveness to that person? Right. And they just got, they got, the girls got mad. They got, they started right, arguing with right, me. Like, right, how, right. what do you mean? Cause I wasn't wrong. I didn't do anything. I didn't, right. you know, you, 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 um, the words and there, and there was like, well, give me an example. And I was like, just simple tone of voice, the way you communicated to your mother, you know, she, that could be perceived as uh, confrontational and attacking and, um, maybe you didn't, you didn't mean to do it that way, but that's how it came across. So what's the harm in asking for her, asking, offering her forgiveness? Like, and it was just a big kind of like, it's like the old thing I heard early on. Would you rather be right or happy? Yeah. That was a tough proposition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty fond of being right. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it, do these things have to not, I kind of think I'm happier when I'm right, but apparently, you know, it's not always the case, it's man. Not always the it case. It is not always the case. <laughs> so, dude. what were what were the uh, what were the descriptors for what? What's the definition of humility? Um, the opposite of that's a terrible way to define. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I have to pull up the book, man. I wish I had it with me. It was it was the opposite of because the 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 concept of this book. It was um, a story about a gentleman from. I believe like the business world, like the stock market kind of mm -hmm. side of things. And he was taking a step back from that. He was very successful, achieved all the, you know, financial accolades and this and that. And he was kind of taking a step back because his uncle who owned a extremely reputable construction business was having some health issues and was having to step down. So he, this guy came in as, the CEO of a construction company having no construction gotcha. background experience whatsoever. And he wanted to try to figure out how to run this business um, successfully and retain employees and create a positive work environment. And so himself, along with two other kind of like executives of this construction company, they sat down and they began to assess all of their employees and mm -hmm. even specifically the employees who, who have left, who didn't work out. Right. And they were looking for skill sets. What skills did the people who lasted have? What skills were the ones who left either intentionally or unintentionally? What skills did they have? And what kind of model can we come up with based off of that to create, you know, a team player. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was that was the three outcomes: um, humble, hungry, and smart. People smart, like being right, able to right. interact and relate with others. So I, th I find it interesting. I find the idea of humility interesting because I, I think we confuse it with being meek mm -hmm. and, and being kind of like uh, subservient to an extent. And it's also one of those things that you're not allowed to claim yourself. Like yeah. that's kind of an unspoken <laughs> part <laughs> it of totally is. You're not allowed to claim uh -huh. it. You're not al allowed to own it on any level. Uh -huh. And so I had an experience um, prior to doing an extensive amount of work in recovery. And uh, I, I took this moment of time um, after having told my life story to another man. I took an hour after that to kind of like get right 
and and be in the presence of the infinite universe after having done this. And uh, I thought after all this work I had done, I was going to have this sort of like a cosmic experience, you know, like it was going to be like fireworks. It was going to be amazing. It was going to be intense. It was going to be epic. You know, this was going to be like an epic, like rock ballad kind of thing. And so I got up there and I was taking a time for myself, you know, quiet time. And the longer I was up there, the less I felt anything to the point that I started to get kind of alarmed. You know, I was, I was a little frightened that like this isn't working. You know, I've made all this effort and I've told this guy my, my story over all these hours and days and, and this isn't working because I'm not experiencing these fireworks. And the longer I, I stood there, the less was going on in my head. And it got to a point, you know, probably a half hour into this where there was like nothing happening in my head. And that became the story, which is like, this is the first time nothing's been going on in my head ever. This is the first time I've not been considering what the past was or what the future holds or what people think of me or where I'm going to go or whether or not I'm going to be successful. And the longer that I sat in that experience, the more I felt like I just fit in the world precisely as I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't need to be some, somebody different in the past or somebody different in the future. I could be right-sized in my own skin. And in that experience, it felt like humility. Like I am right-sized. Like my idea of myself and my idea of my life fits into the universe right this minute. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my experience of humility. And, and part of what I think, what I want that to inform in my life going forward is that I don't want to try to put on a face of being humble because my picture of humility is meek. Yeah. And and I'm... I'm um, passionate about things and I've got a loud voice and I curse a lot and all these things. And, and so I, I don't know that I'm built to be just quiet and meek. Yeah. And so because I've got this picture of humility, which is just being like my grandmother, you know, she's like, Oh, you know, bless, bless her heart. You know, I, I don't have that in me. Um, part of what that picture of just being right sized in my own skin provides for me is that that's my job is to be right-sized in the world I fit in and not be afraid of making mistakes and, and just going out there and being being as I am and that um, not trying to make the future look a different way. Um, and so most of my conflicts with people come when I'm trying to, to shape the future, when I'm trying to rewrite the past, you know. And so where I, I come into conflict with the world is in that moment. So if I'm in the moment, yeah, I very infrequently find myself in a situation where I'm creating chaos. What you're describing is exactly what we place the majority of our effort in at refuge recovery, present time experience, right? Getting, getting out of that, um, reliving the past and getting out of that planning for the future. How do you do that? We do that through mindfulness meditation, right. connecting with the breath, connecting with the sensations in our body, right. training our mind to let go of those things. And I'll tell you one of the most difficult things that I've experienced and I've seen people experience in recovery is confusing the actions with the point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this old story about a, a guy who's teaching karate or something like this, old master, you know. And the old master, way back in the day, broke his knee, like, real bad. And so he's got this weird limp. And so he's got this whole class of students, and he's showing them this form, and he's explaining to them what they're supposed to do. And they're all looking at the, the teacher, and they're mimicking his injury, effectively, you know, in the way they shape their legs and stuff. They miss the whole point of the exercise because what they're trying to do is mimic the phys- physical aspect yeah. of what it is he's doing. And so meditation is one of those things. It took me forever to be able to sit quietly because I spent so much time trying to breathe right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, 
and if I try to breathe right, like I, I, I like I hyperventilate. You know, I'll mm-hmm. sit down and like, and, and I'll lose my breath. Like I'll, I have no oxygen in my body because I'm like trying to get the rhythm just right or whatever. And and so I miss the whole point of like just being mindful, just sitting down with myself without any sort of judgment, without any sort of like prescription about what that's supposed to look like. And I've found that if I can focus on why I'm supposed to be doing something and not what that's supposed to look like, I find myself like in a situation like meditating. Uh, when I gave up all the ideas of what that was supposed to look like, you know, just like when I'm giving up my ideas about what humility is supposed to look like and trying to mimic being meek. Um, when I gave up my ideas about what meditation was supposed to look like, I was like, all right, my job is to sit here and be mindful and not create a bunch of judgment in my head, just sit down, let the things come and go as they will. I find myself relaxed and my breathing's just completely natural. Does it on its own. It completely does it on its own. But if I'm trying to do it, I'm done. And it's the, a wreck. The thing about that is that you go to one meditation retreat and that is like the common theme from everybody that's participating is is like those the monks or whoever the teacher is, that's what they're gonna hear all day long in the one on one sessions is thinking about how how to do it right. I'm thinking about how to do it right. right thinking about right, how to do it right. right, right, right. 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 That right there is what you're doing wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's all you got to do. That's the paradox. Stop, just, Absolutely. Just connect, I, man. You look at, at any of the um, successful modes of recovery, um, there's a dogma associated with it. Anything that's successful, there's a dogma that's associated with it because it's successful. And so people want to repeat that. And, and there's things, it's like the game of telephone. There's things that get lost in translation. You know? So when you look at the, uh, the 12 steps, which I've got some experience with, um, You'll hear people talk about uh, whatever it is. You know, I came to believe that a power greater than myself mm-hmm. could restore us to sanity. You, you want to sit down and have a conversation about that. It's automatically a conversation about God. Yeah. That sentence has got very little do, to do with mm-hmm. God. It's the idea of like, can you believe that there, that healing is possible? Yeah. That's the question. But we hear one or two words and the associations and the dogmas that come with that destroy the conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about taking a personal inventory, a personal inventory of like, my life effectively and people hear about like well basically i gotta write down the terrible shit that i did you know and and certainly if you're writing down your life story you're gonna write down some egregious stuff but it's really about just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. you know sharing that with somebody else sounds a lot like confessional you know but i i've not experienced that to be the case at all it's more about me you know saying it out loud you know letting it get out of my head and and, and so it's easy for me to lose sight in the practice of what it is I'm trying to do. And I feel like people do that a lot with, you know, I get this a lot for people who want to come to the program and they ask me right out of the gate, is, is this an AA thing, you know? And, and, and do we got to talk about God or any of this stuff? And, and like, look, I, I don't care where you go in the world. Um, you're going to have to talk, you're going to have to come face to face with the idea of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a fact. So it doesn't need to even be a God program. Like what they're really asking me is, do I have to talk about God and do I got to sit in those stupid meetings, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it's evidence to me that there's d- just the dogma reeks of inauthenticity. You know, it's a big part, I think, of what's missing in, in a lot of the recovery conversation is that we're trying to force it. You know, it lacks a basic level of authenticity of, um, that you find in, 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 in other, I don't even know the right word, in other communities where it's naturally authentic. You know, there's a big authenticity gap in the recovery world and why do you think that is um because of decades of doing it the wrong way i i don't think it's the wrong way i think it's there's a game of telephone you know and so what happens is the more times it's passed along at some point it becomes like the 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 conversation gets rigor mortis you know 
and it's just like passing on a, a dead baby. It loses all its life, you know. So if at some point in, in a vibrant community, everybody adds their contribution to that story of telephone, and even if it, it loses its translation through the circle, it's not like passing along a dead animal, you know, that just loses life more and more. And by the end of it, you're like, get this out of my hands, you know. There's an element of that where... Um, where the spirit gets lost unless people take some level of responsibility. I think it comes down to a personal responsibility, you know. Um, am I going to be a member of the recovery community? What does that mean, you know? Does that mean I just take, 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 and I'm going there trying to uh, scrounge for what's mine and I take it and I walk away? Does that mean I come to it and try to figure out how to be a part of a community? Where do, where do I fit in? Right, and I think most people come to recovery looking to take the thing that's going to make them better yeah with no real sense of uh of accountability or responsibility to what it is they take and no real sense of like re-contributing I, th I think when you get enough of that and there's a critical mass right now we were talking about this earlier when you get a place that's overcome by people who are new to the process and the majority of a group is people who are brand new to the process of which a huge majority don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. That generates a certain energy, yeah. you know? And I think that that's a big part. feed off of each other. Feed off of each other. And it, 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 it is tough for the people who have something to offer um, to not get worn out in that process, you know? Also, just kind of like a lack of education, like not knowing what to expect. Because, sure. like, I mean, um, I had never... I had no attempts at recovery. I never walked into a 12-step group. I had never, you know, outside of forced treatment to fulfill obligations with my probation officer or with um, the DMV or whoever it may be, like I, I never had any intentions on, on changing. So I had no, I didn't know what to expect. And um, I found my place at Refuge Recovery because of like that dogma right. perception. Sure. Right. Sure. And much of like what I've learned and heard over the years is that like the more you do it, the more you do the practice and the more you commit yourself and continue on, the the more the closer to this said higher power, the closer, the more open you will become to um, these things. And I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, I tell Caleb all the time on this podcast is that like when I, in early recovery for like the first two years, I held on to my fixed views sure. and I held them close to me and I right. was like, this works. Right. I, I have this, this thing mm -hmm. and I know it works because it, I've experienced it. And so I don't want to know what you guys are doing over there. Like, right. I don't, I, I have no intention on, um, ever even like connecting or even having a conversation with you guys. Right. Because I have this thing that works for me and this right. works for me and I'm going to stick to it and I'll, I will be of service and I'll offer it to those who my fi may find value in it. But if you don't, y'all are on your own. I'm on my own. I'm doing my thing over right, here. Right. 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 It took a long time for me to open up and to even like come to a table with somebody like you mm -hmm. and like Caleb who has a different pathway and a different approach. Right. And here we are doing a show called North Carolina recovery always where we talk about right. All the different pathways. Right. And even the things that are outside of your, like your fellowship, like what are you guys doing in your life? What is, you right. know, so like right. it's, it took a lot of effort and a lot of intentional effort to overcome that. Sure. Right. And to open myself up. I think one of the things there was, I had a really interesting exchange with, uh, close family member and my wife and I were on a text thread together. 
And the close family member was telling me about a friend of hers whose husband had a gambling addiction. And so this conversation was about this gambling addiction that had just come to light. And this like on paper, perfect family, you know, um, everything's going right, high incomes, things are good. And one day it all comes out, you know, all the debt and all this stuff. And, and so this conversation was this exchange about what to do in this situation, you know, um, should she leave them? Should she protect themselves? How do you protect the kids in this situation? Um, what's the right way to treat this guy? So on and so forth, you know? And so we're having this conversation at one point. Um, what struck me was how differently we treat um, addiction from cancer. And so at the same time, you know, while I'm having this conversation, this close family member and my wife and I, um, there's another close friend of mine who's been diagnosed with cancer. And his, the way his family, he and his wife and his children have addressed this has been just an absolute tremendous thing to watch. His wife, who's a brilliant lady, has got a Facebook page dedicated to the process of recovery, mm -hmm. and she's telling her story, and people are supporting them, and it's been tremendous to watch. We don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. We don't know if he's going to survive, um, but everybody's rooting him on. There's, you know, the fight's there. Um, what is not present at all in that exchange is um, at least not on the, on the face of it. There might be some internally, I don't know. There's no shame there. Like there's no conversation of like, oh God, we got to keep this secret. And so as we're having this conversation about the gambling addict, just the thought of having a Facebook page where like, hey, everybody, my, my husband's a gambling addict and we're going to begin the process of recovery and I want to keep you guys posted on this. Like the thought of that is so crazy. Mm -hmm. How foreign is that, you know? And so at the beginning, at the point that we can't have that conversation publicly, because of the shame attached to this, because of the guilt attached to this, because of the, the, the potential threat to the children, what, he, what happens if he bankrupts us, you know? What's ironic is that the threat to the children with my friend who has cancer is just as real, that they lose their dad, mm -hmm. that they've got to watch this guy basically um, die in front of them. That's no less profound than, than the gambling addict running a family into bankruptcy, you know? And so the more you look at it and you pull the correlations... Obviously, addiction has, has a mental component that makes the addict appear to be the cause of the condition, right? And that's at the core of it. But there's no shame in the treatment. It's a public thing, you know. You say, my husband has cancer. How many people on Facebook are, are going to blow you up with support and send you private messages, all this thing? You say, my husband's a gambling addict. Like, that's a totally different conversation. So at the point that... We have to come into recovery, and there's already that element of shame, already a lack of willingness collectively in our world to talk about something like this without shame. It's it becomes this like it's an internal journey at that point. Yeah, and it's kind of like I've got to get this for myself, and and all the mixed messages that that brings. And I think that that's part of the reason why um, it's there are times where recovery at any level lacks vibrancy is because people show up there broken, sick, and with a tremendous amount of shame. You know, the amount of time that it takes, and I think you talk to anybody who's, who's actively got lots of years of recovery, the, the conversation of how to, how to manage the shame, particularly early on, is a huge part of it. Like, at the point that you can just show up as you are, um, takes years in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a big part of why, um, why people struggle to get better.
Do you think that that's something that's just like internalized in the individual? How could it not be? And it's not because it's not. How could it not be? It's not present out there like right. in the rooms. Come on, you know, like what? I mean, we 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 as a culture collectively understand that it that when you you know it's like you're shaming your dog. You know, your dog poops on the carpet, and you're like ah, freaking out. Like the whole point of that is to shame the dog because the experience of the shame is going to be profound enough to keep him from shitting on the carpet. Mm -hmm. You know. That leaves a mark. And so when you think about that, basically, um, my experience with addiction is that I didn't, you know, something came over me to where I really wasn't the one calling the shots about whether I got high or not. That's just like I wasn't there. And so I can break it down to like I did make a decision to go get high. But at the same time, there were times where I didn't make that decision. And I found myself in a situation where I was high and I couldn't explain to you how I got there. So... Just that alone, the doubt of like, wait a minute, is this a condition that I have that's inside of me um, that I have a choice about or not? Just that alone. How long does it take to grapple with that? And if there's enough shame present in that conversation, even if it's not coming from the people directly around you, even if it's a larger cultural conversation where like this is a bad thing, this guy's a degenerate, you know, um, I think it takes a long time to get rid of that. Yeah. You know, and a lot, I think a lot of people never get rid of that. You know, but it's also difficult. Look, the pain that's caused by people in addiction is is devastating in a way, um, and nasty in a way that maybe cancer isn't. And so, it's a tough situation. I'm not suggesting that um, it should be so plain and simple, um, but I am suggesting that the way we treat this is broken. You know, and that was look the first real movement in the recovery from alcoholism started with Alcoholics Anonymous. And the big, the, a couple of big breakthroughs, but one of the biggest breakthroughs, and you know, this is what they talk about um, in, in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the biggest breakthroughs was the idea that this wasn't a moral dilemma. Mm -hmm. That was one of the big epiphanies, and that was a huge epiphany, and that's when people started getting better. Prior to that, you know, if you listen to, to Carl Jung, um, the only people that got better had these phenomenon, phenomenon, phenomenon experiences, not phenomenal, but phenomenal, like no explanation for it, spiritual experiences, like lightning bolt strikes these dudes or ladies and they're completely different. That's the only thing that gets things better. You know, there's no process for getting pe people better. The process for getting people better collectively in the country became when we said, this is not a moral dilemma. There's something else going on in the minds of these people. We can't put our fingers on it, but it's a problem. Suddenly started people started looking at it differently. Now you can go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or a refuge recovery meeting or celebrate recovery. And it's not like you're not going to get shamed in the streets. But like any um, cultural progression over an idea, it takes time for that to evolve. You know, you th think about segregation is a great example. It's a con constant conversation in our society. You go from, from slavery to segregation to wh wherever it is we are now. You know, anybody who's observing what's going on would be a fool to say, yeah, we're done. You know, and the same thing I think can be said about the idea of shame, cultural shame as it, as it relates to recovery. Yeah. How do you, specifically at your organization, at Making Whole, how do you work with an individual to teach them to meet that experience with compassion and with forgiveness? I think one of the most practical things to do to people is to... Um, is to get real with somebody about when they've when they've messed up, um, and 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 not 
carry a big, uh, not carry a bunch of judgment with that. So if somebody screws something up, um, saying you screw that up and, and it's okay, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Um, and here's how we get our way out of that. That's kind of, I think that's a beginning place. Did we lose our feed? We did. Uh-oh. We could probably take a pause then, huh? We can. You want to take a pause? Yeah. It's uh, the reason why I asked you that is how do you how do you kind of teach uh, the individuals to kind of meet that okay. shame with compassion, meet that guilt with forgiveness? Um, and, and I think it's a great question, and this is actually I think pretty telling on my general tact with people in general is that I think there's such a fright in our world, and I, I get this sense with a lot of people um, that we're not allowed to talk about when we fail at something. Mm -hmm. um, that when somebody um, is willing to talk about that and not carry with that conversation a tremendous amount of judgment, it's an incredibly freeing experience. Mm -hmm. So when somebody, you know, we had one guy, uh, he's actually having a pretty good day and he's running things through a table saw and he switches off for one second and this, the table saw blade picks up a piece of wood and shoots it across the shop into the wall 25 feet away. And it was like, it's a sight to behold, you know? And it, when something like that happens in a shop, everybody kind of stops and, and, and speaks to whoever God is in their own, own head for a moment, you know? So in that moment, there's an opportunity right there where this guy knows, like, the piece of wood flying across the shop at, like, ballistic speeds is enough to know that you've fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> He doesn't need extra encouragement oh, at that point. He like he's just sent a piece of wood. The bottom of the piece of wood is just gnarled from the table saw blade. He does not need you coming over to him and telling him. <laughs> but, but saying, man, wow, that was fucked up what you just did. And here's what we're going to do to prevent it in the past. Mm -hmm. And you're not a bad person for doing that. Because that's what happened with me. Is I've made a mistake. I must be a terrible human being. You know, I must be, I must be, a, I must be flawed to the point that I'm incapable of success. Mm -hmm. That's the story, right? So when somebody says, no, you just made a mistake and here's how we're going to do it. And so it's one of these moments, like I, I feel like um, one of the things that came in the 90s is this need to like the nurturing movement, you know, like let's nurture people, let them know they're okay. And and, and that sort of softness, I, I, I felt a, such a deep repellency of that idea because when I failed, I want to know, like I've made a mistake. Let's not, let's not um, paper that over. Um, so if somebody can be like, yeah, you made a mistake and here's how you don't do that, I guess, sweet. Now I've got a way out. Yeah. You know? I don't have to be ashamed of myself because people make mistakes. Um, and I don't have to do that again. And so the thing is, is that you, addicts are not stupid people. You know? And they're also, one of the things I've found is that I've never met somebody who suffers from addiction who is not profoundly sensitive. And when I say sensitive, I don't necessarily mean like, soft emotionally i mean like aware of everything that's going on mm -hmm. aware of people around them aware of the situation they're in hyper level of sensitivity so when you got somebody who's hypersensitive and generally intelligent what they need is direction you know if you pretend that things aren't screwed up they sense that you're telling a lie they don't want any part of that you know and so i think that that's part of what can be provided is like look here's where you screwed up there's no you're not bad for doing that and here's what we're going to do in the future and like, and, and there's going to be, you might not get it the next time. You might do this again, you know, and we'll revisit it at that point. And there's not going to be some 
building level of shame yeah. that, that helps encourage you to become a better person. But it's all about that delivery. It's all how, about how the, you deliver that message. Right. And there's, there's people who can deliver that and there's people who can't. And it's like, I think that it, that's, you know, we were talking about team players and stuff like that a little bit ago. That's a characteristic of a proven leader, right? Somebody who can approach it in a, approach that situation in a kind and compassionate way. Right. Um, and I think that what you guys are doing, what you specifically are doing, there's not a lot of people out there that are doing it, doing that are providing what you're providing. I really I, I, don't. I, I, do. it, it's interesting because it's actually one of the giant flaws in my business is that it's not scalable for that reason. Yeah. And and that's that's something that I've, as a businessman, which I am. Um, that I've considered a lot and I was, you know, I trust that through the process of the evolution of this business project, that that will, will make itself clear what my next steps are so that I can be successful as a business person. But at the fact of the matter is this is a human business, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's in a sense, it's in, at odds with, um, the way the economy works right now, which is like the point of running a business is to scale it up so you can be financially successful. And unfortunately, this is not that at the moment, you know, because you're right. It takes a certain person with a certain level of experience, both in being able to build something, but also in being able to communicate with people. Um, luckily, I've got guys that are working with me right now in the shop um, that have a tremendous amount of talent at that. You know, I've, I've lucked into that. Um, and so I believe it exists. You know, I think one of the things that's um, throughout the craft community is that people um, these are compassionate and sensitive people that end up in that work, partly because it's not particularly economically viable. So it, it basically washes out all the people mm-hmm. who are there for the money. Mm-hmm. And so the people who are left in, in the craft world are people who are doing it out of passion and out of sensitivity for something that's handcrafted, you know. And so it attract that, that there's a certain audience that comes with that. So I'm lucky to have a lot of people who are just genuinely good teachers and genuinely compassionate people at the same time. Yeah. What is it about just like, what is it about the act of building something that provides that meaning to (laughs) this human experience? Well, there's a lot of things that have been written about that. There's a lot of great books. Um, There's a book by a guy named Peter Korn called why we build things and why it matters. Um, You know, there's a book called, uh, the uh, guy turned turned me on to called um, Soulcraft or Shop Class for Soulcraft, something to that effect. I forget the uh, title right now. There's lots of books written about that, but where I go with it real quickly is that, and, and this is another interesting conversation to have, is that if regardless of how you define the word God, um, and I think that that's a conversation we can we should get into in a minute. Regardless of how you define that. Um, in every discipline where that's um, presented, the idea of God, there's a creative aspect to it. You know, and, and there's, I guess, I guess one of the things is that God is creative, and one of the things is that we are in some likeness of that. And so on some level or another, there's something that's unexplainably spiritual about the process of creating something and bringing something yeah. into the world that doesn't exist before. And I would suggest that much like feeling your the tooth that's knocked out, that there's a similar process that happens deep in our subconscious where I've done something and I'm connected to the universe. You know, so I, I think that there's a deep 
spiritual significance in creating something that didn't exist before. Um, I think that there's something that happens when you're making something where you lose yourself in the process. And I think that's part of what's so attractive about it. When you're creating something, you're really into it and you've really got a, enough of skills to, to forge through it and you're solving problems, you're in the moment. There's a certain amount of meditation to that work, regardless of how talented you are. Yeah. Even when you're not, especially when you're new and you don't know what you're doing and you're having to solve all these problems, you know, it's, it's in some regards, it's hard to be more purely human than in the moment of any creative endeavor. Yeah. In the positive psychology world, one of the classes that I recently took, they describe it as flow when you're just in yeah, flow. Flow is a great example of that. that. Yeah. And that's where you'll hear it described moment. in the business yeah. world too. It's all the same thing, you know, and that's yeah. another thing I think people get confused about what creativity is and what specifically what the creative process is. And I think a lot of people hear the creative process and automatically Pinterest comes to mind, you know, twisted pipe cleaners and <laughs> stuff like that. And, 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 and more importantly, end objects. You know, people think, oh, you're so creative, you're so talented, you made that thing, right? And the creative process couldn't be further from that. The creative yeah. process, very similar to the scientific process, which is very much a... Um, a problem-solving process, a very much scientific process, um, where where you go on an exploration, and in that moment, um, it, where you're solving these problems, you get into a sense of a, a, like a spiritual connection. Yeah. And so that process is not unique to building furniture. Like you said, there's a business element of that that's described by the the idea of flow, and it, it exists everywhere. I don't think creativity is limited to making objects. You know, that's another thing that I'm not interested in necessarily in creating cabinet makers. I'm interested in people that can learn the creative process and take that into whatever work that they do. Yeah. You know, it was one of the, the journeys on my professional life as I went and started working um, at more of a management level with the last company I worked with. And I found myself doing things like Excel spreadsheets. And I'm a high school dropout degenerate. Um, I, I don't, you know, that's not where I come from. Um, but because I had become so deeply engaged in the creative process part of, prior to doing this, that same process will teach you how to do a spreadsheet. And, and that's not something I would known how to do before. But if I take that spirit of that same process where I ask myself what I need to accomplish, what are the avenues I can go down to accomplish that? You know, I, I create hypotheses. You know, I try them out. I see what works. I get into the discipline of the work of doing it. I trudge through it. I come out the other side. I see what worked, what didn't work, and then I repeat that process again. That's just as valid to develop in a spreadsheet as it is to build a dining table. It's yeah. the same thing, you know. One of the first things I did when I moved here, early recovery, I was up in my family's cabin up on Cully Mountain, my first winter coming out of Florida, and we were stuck. We were stuck, uh, snowed in for like two weeks. And um, I was like looking for something to do, right? It was me and my significant other. And I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to, like, we couldn't leave the house for two weeks. What am I going to do? And um, I started kind of like looking around in the house and I go out into the garage and like I found a bunch of like scrap material, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And I went like kind of down underneath the deck. I just, I compiled a bunch of scrap material and I was like, oh, I'm going to build a chicken coop. <laughs> why i have no idea like it just it just came to me right i'm gonna i'm gonna build a chicken coop and so like for the next like 10 days i was down in the garage for a couple hours a day like messing around with uh with this this stuff and i, I was trying my vision was to build it without having to purchase any material right i just okay. i'm just gonna build it with what i can find around the house like whatever's here we're snowed in i'm gonna build it 
I built the chicken coop and, um, you know, it came out. Okay. It's not, it's not the, it's not the, <laughs> the most beautiful thing in the world, but yeah. it's suitable for a flock of chickens. That's awesome. And so we got, I went, you know, down to the early spring. I went down to the little farmer's market and I picked up like six chicks and took them home and raised them till they were big enough to get in the coop. And I threw them out in the coop and, you know, eight months later, they're popping eggs out for me. Wow. And it was just like that process from the idea, right? Sitting in the house, snowed in to um, collecting and gathering materials to putting the thing together to going out every morning and grabbing five or six eggs out of yeah. the coop. I thought that story was going to end with you saying I put the, the chicks out there and, and they, they grew off. up <laughs> and then a fox came and ate them all, no, which would have been they, an awesome story, yeah. but it's still, it's perfect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was told. It, it, it um, it, it totally like served its purpose. And I did, uh, you know, I did, I don't have them anymore. They, I kind of had to give them away because I went home. You know, with, you can eat chickens. Yeah, I know. No, I, I <laughs> in my story, part of my story is I broke my leg a couple, 18 months into recovery. And so I went back to Florida for 90 days to heal. And so mm -hmm. when I went back to Florida, I gave them away to oh, a close friend to put them in his coop. So, um, so he ate them. He, he did, I believe ate, he ate the chicken. So <laughs> he did. Don't let, don't, don't, I don't want PETA outside protesting hey, when, easy when we're done. Easy PETA. Tone it down guys. <clears throat> but yeah, I believe he did. Uh, but yeah, just like that, that whole process and then the purpose that it served, you know, later, um, later on for me, I just thought that that, when I was like uh, pretty vulnerable at that time and just learning and I wasn't really venturing out in the recovery communities here. I was really like, I was really engaged online with the online refuge recovery mm -hmm. community and I was doing like the conference call, phone in meetings and stuff like that. Sure. It provided that kind of like, um, that kind of meaning and that kind of, kind of gratitude for like the work that I did and the idea that I had. And a tremendous amount of self-worth, which mm -hmm. can't be underestimated either. Yeah. You know, when you experience building something, it's hard to feel useless in that process, you know, because you're actually creating something right in front of you. Yeah. So one of the things that we were just talking about is, is God. And I think that that's a huge component of this. But this is tying back into our earlier conversation is that it's the biggest, it's the biggest problem. Um, and most importantly, the big problem with this is that it's a terrible word. So when you think about, you know, you go anywhere, anywhere you talk about recovery, you're going to come in contact with the word God. Um, even if what you're coming in contact with is how God's not real, it doesn't matter what it is. You're just coming in contact with the word, no value one way or the other. It's come, it's going to come up. And so the, the point of words is that you and I sitting here can say something. When you said chicken coop, I have a really good idea of what you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to the point that I can describe that back to you and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I did. You know, you can give me a couple more directives and I can even rebuild that. Right. When we use the word God, what does that mean? So if we go out here <clears throat> in Silva, North Carolina, where the ideas are still from a tight knit community, we're not bringing ideas from all over the world here. We're just in one small community small mountain community, if we go out here and ask 100 people to define the word God, you're almost guaranteed that you're not going to get the same answer twice. Oh, no, around here you probably will. But You still won't. You still won't. Because even then, even if you're under the same doctrine, mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. when you dig into something, we're mm -hmm. talking about something that's non-definable. And so that's one of the big challenges, I think, in, in, as we talk about why is recovery struggle? Why is it stagnant? Why is it... 
because one of the driving forces, whether you're for it or against it, whether you believe in it, whether you don't, doesn't matter. It's a word that we're not, we're not on the same page about what the hell we're talking about, you know? And so one of the things that differentiates, I believe, um, addiction from a lot of the other conditions is this sort of, um, the mental and emotional and spiritual element, the combination of the spiritual being the combination of all the things we are, mental, emotional, physical, unexplainable. When you combine all four of those things together, that's the spiritual reality. Um, while cancer affects all those things, um, addiction is tied in, is integral to all those elements of our lives. And I think that's one of the big hurdles, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, when we look at what is successful in, in addiction recovery, there's not a lot of um, big successful places. And part of the reason why is we don't even know what the hell we're talking about. We, don't, we can't define, um, as a people, how do we define something that is so integral to every aspect of the human experience? You know, I don't know that there's, and, and I haven't given this a huge amount of thought, but I don't know that there's an example of something in the world where people have successfully described something that affects all those aspects of life in a way that's conveyable to another human being. So we can experience that, but to explain that and to be able to convey that and to, to deliver a message is a really profound and difficult challenge. So when we start talking about, you know, we're talking about um, involuntary commitment and things like that. Um, you know, we, we're having that conversation, we don't even know what we're after. But one of the things we can do and where, where involuntary commitment and where harm reduction plays a value is that at least we, we do the best we can to not have to make the whole process suck real bad, you yeah. know? And that's the idea of trying to eliminate shame from the conversation is that we, don't, we still don't know what we're doing. But at least we're not doing it with, with unnecessary tools, you know? That's another big aspect of, of my belief in recovery and my belief specifically about God is that um, we don't have to place moral judgments on certain things to decide whether they're useful or not. And so with shame, um, you know, like the example of the dog shitting on the carpet, you know, maybe there's some value in that shame where like we shame the dog and then the dog is like, well, I don't want to do that again, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's that argument to be made. Um, I would make the argument that shame does not add value to the recovery process at any stage more so than there, there are alternative things that will. So there's certain elements, you'll hear somebody tell a story about recovery and they'll say shame played a huge role because it's what drove me to get better. Yeah, influenced my it influenced, choices. And, and, yeah. and certainly I'm, you can't not be influenced by it. Mm -hmm. But to say that that adds value would, to ne would be to negate the idea that there's something else that couldn't be in the place of that shame that would have served a higher function, right? And so while shame might have gotten me to the point where I, I got willing to do certain things, Somebody coming along and giving me a, a dose of um, guidance and mentorship and direction maybe does that faster, more effectively, and more directly gets me to the point that I'm trying to go to. And that's basically the premise of what I'm, what I'm after, is that I believe there's a more direct route to the experience I've had. Yeah. And the other thing is that, like, we're, like, the example that you just gave where people will... Um, reflect back on their experience and attribute those choices to the shameful experience that they had. However, like we're relying on kind of like the human memory. Right. And so when they're reflecting back on their story, what's going to stand out? Right. Of course. The shame. Yeah. The thing that hurt the most. <laughs> but, but when there were other parts of that story that 
contributed and led to the action that they took to change their lives. Right. But what stands out in their mind is the shame. Right. Is the guilt that they felt from whatever right. it was that they might So it's have certainly done. a powerful force. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, and I'm curious, look, you know, part of the way I describe what I'm doing, and, and I still will describe this to an extent, although I don't know that people necessarily understand what I'm talking about, is that what I'm doing is a big experiment. Like I have this general idea that there's other ways to, to impact people in early recovery. Um, but I don't know that. You know, this is an experiment. And I think that there needs to be more experiments in the world. I think there needs to be less certainty. You know, mm -hmm. people are so certain about their process, but there's not results to prove anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there needs to be a lot less certainty, a lot more experiments, a lot more consideration, a lot more creative um, vision behind how we how we treat addiction, how we talk about addiction, how we talk about recovery more specifically. I think that the conversation about recovery is um, is, is disjointed and um, difficult as it's been in all the time that I've been sober. No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, I, and it, you know, part of that could be because now I'm going to places because I'm in the business. I've never been in the business before. Yeah. I had no intention of being in this business, <laughs> you know. And so that could certainly be part of it. But at the same time, it's like, uh, um, yeah, I guess I... I'm probably not a good judge of that. My, in my own personal experience, it feels more disjointed for me. I don't know that that's necessarily um, going to play out at a larger scale or not. What? Um, how do you? How do you identify clients or apprentices? And then, like, what is the? What I is got, the screening gotta, process for them to kind of get into your program? And uh, the screening process is I got to find out whether they want to do it or not. That's really what this boils down to. Um, I've got some real great questions. I'll send you the questionnaire one day. Um, I got real important questions on there that I that I got from Facebook, and so one day I asked I asked my Facebook community, which um, you got a huge following, dude. They popped on the, when I posted yesterday that you were got, coming on, oh, dude. Man. They responded. I got I got I got great people in my life. Yeah, that's one of the things. I got great people in my life. I feel like I should shout out some of them right now, but. You guys know who you are. We'll leave you some time at the end. Oh, I'll shout them all out. I have to pull up my Facebook friend list and not forget, forget anybody. So anyway, I asked my Facebook community, if you had one question you could ask somebody that would um, produce uh, the most clarity about who they are, what would that question be? And I got some great ones, you know. And they, they, they are across the spectrum. And a lot of those show up on the questionnaire that I, uh, that I give guys to find out whether they're suited for the program or not. Um, one of those questions that, that came from one of my sisters, which was great, it's one of my favorites, is uh, in the event of the zombie apocalypse, what would you give up? No, what would you leave behind Who and who would you turn to? Which I thought was a great question. Yeah. And so questions like that, I, I want to kind of figure out, um, you know, I ask people what their favorite music is, uh, what, what their favorite movies are. I'm, I'm really just more curious about, I don't, you know, I don't care about people's diagnoses. I don't care about most of the questions that show up in, in addiction. You're looking treatment. at you're looking at how they answer them. I'm curious about how people answer questions. Yeah. I'm curious about how what what makes what interests people. Um, those kind of things. Like um, I'm not concerned about their diagnoses. I'm not concerned about um, whether they've been sober or not. I'm concerned about like how they answer those questions and whether they're ready to work or not. You know, because at the end of the day, if somebody's ready to work, I think they can get better. Um, I don't think that everybody's ready to work gets better because I don't think everybody's exposed to the kind of direction that gets people better. Yeah. That was another premise. I, I, I had a number of very close friends commit suicide 
And in some of those cases, these are people that I had, I had worked with closely. And part of the thing that brought Making Whole into reality was that I felt strongly that had I had more personal time with these people, um, that there could have been a change. Like if I, if I got to spend more time. And so part of where that came from is that the, the business I had in Asheville, we did architectural concrete. It was called Mandala Design. And people came and worked for me that were new in recovery all the time. And people would come back to me years later and say, you know, working in your studio changed my life. Changed my life to be in that environment, to be in a creative environment, to be around people who had long-term sobriety and see how they just operated through the course of the day. And all you were doing at that time was just running a business. That was just a business. There was no... So my studio manager was a tremendous human being um, who was a father, husband, studio manager. He was, he was there every day. And he just operated the way a good human being operates, you know? And I had a family, and, and our lives were there in the business. You know, I had family members working with me. Um, and so these guys got to see what just, uh, what recovery could look like. And so people numerous times have come back to me and said, working at your studio changed my life. And so when I look at some of these other people that didn't make it, what I knew is that when we could have more daily monotonous time together, where we just weren't freaking out, that that makes an impact in people's lives. So I would spend time with these guys in the moments of time that I had between work and family and obligations. Um, and during those times, everything was okay that I would spend time with these guys. And then they would go away and it would be a day or two or three or four days before we would see each other again. And by the time they came back, they were a fucking wreck, you know, and their life was dark and all this stuff. And we would, we would over an hour or two hours or whatever period of time we had together, we would reel all that back in and remember like, like everything's okay. And we would re recount like how the work that they were doing in their life was making an impact, although it, albeit not this monumental impact. Right. Um, and they would be like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can do this. I can do this. And they would make a start and something would come up in their day and they would lose the plot. And then next thing you know, they're freaking out again. And so I think one of the hallmarks of true recovery is that it's not a monument. And I think we're all looking for monuments. This is one of the big epiphanies I had as a husband and, and, and being married. Um, and this was recently like enough, recently enough to where I should be ashamed because I've been married for a, a decent period of time. Um, that all my ideas about love came from Disney. All my ideas of intimacy came from Disney. And I don't like Disney to the point that I've actually gotten into conflicts in my life not wanting to go to Disney with my kids, which makes me a terrible human being. I get it. I, I loathe Disney. But somehow, all my stories about intimacy and about what love should be come from Disney. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized, like, yeah, happily ever after, um, no pain, everything's beautiful on the outside, there's just basically no conflict. And real intimacy... Smooth sailing. It, real intimacy is a dirty business, you know, and it's intense and it's, it's dark at times and it's wonderful at times. It's all, it's all the things. It's everything. That's, that's what it is. That's life. That's right. It's, intimacy is everything. Life is everything. Um, I completely lost my train of thought. Uh, Oh, so with recovery, it's the same thing. I think part of, and this is the Disney model, is that we're looking for the monument throughout our lives. When we're trying to recover from depression or addiction or something, we're waiting for that moment where everything's okay. Guess what? Doing dope does that. Yeah. Like, that's the ultimate monument. Like, fuck, it's happening. Like, it's now. It's big. It feels amazing. I feel like I'm 
in the middle of the infinite universe in a fucking moment's time. Temporarily. Right? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is a permanent... My The core of my cellular being knows that to be true. Mm -hmm. That when I get high, I can be at the center of the infinite universe in a heartbeat. And so when I get sober, naturally, that's what I'm looking for. You know, we're talking about, like, I... I I don't know that I wanted to go, you know, getting thrown in jail helped me get committed. I didn't want to get committed. I didn't want to get sober because basically the idea of getting sober was that I had to quit taking my medicine. I, I had to leave the core of the infinite universe to go be in this world that sucks. You know, so that's a terrible proposition. It's a courageous move. Well, when, when the, yeah, who knows? The, who, exactly. Know, like, yeah, yeah. Cake or death. And yeah. you're like, I'll fucking take death. Uh -huh. that, uh, <laughs> th thank you very much, right? So... I think part of what I was looking for was the monument. And, and that shows up throughout my life and throughout my recovery. And the more that I, I pull away from looking for the monument, the big moment, the falling in love, the house, the job, all, you know, fill in the blank, looking for the big moment where everything's okay, I'm on vacation for the rest of my life. And that moment never comes. You know, and so it is a, is a newly sober person. If somebody had told me that without giving me the context of that story, I might have given up. You know, it's, what, not, it's not worth all that work. Right. What comes is something that's real and profound and sustainable and rich. That's what comes. And so anyway, getting back to where I was starting with all this are these guys who have killed themselves, is that the, re the path to recovery, you, you never arrive at the monument. What you do is you take really slow, progressive steps. It's just like building a piece of furniture. You look at an amazing piece of furniture. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's flawless. The work that led up to that is mostly monotonous. It's not creative. You know, it's not designy. It's not thinking. It's like chopping raw wood. It's loud noises. It's dust. It's splinters in your fingers. It's sanding for hours on end to the point that the hum just starts rattling your brain. That's how you build something that's beautiful. The same thing is true in life. You want to have a, you know, a successful marriage and children and and a successful business like those things are just a combination of a bunch of experience that are that are not always fun and so somebody who's in the crisis moment where they're not sure they want to live or not it's really tough to encourage somebody through that process like no come you don't want to die what you want to do is come have this existence that on the face of it as i describe it to you sounds terribly boring and monotonous and not full of joy and stuff like that it's like building a chicken coop you know, if I break down the elements of that, it's not an exciting proposition, you know. Mm. But there's something that happens when you give up the need for the monument and you embrace the process where you become free. And at the end of the day, that's what I really wanted. I thought the reason I was looking for the monument is I thought that's where freedom was. But what I was really looking for underneath it all is I just wanted to be free. I just wanted to be okay and whole in my own skin. And so the way I get there is it, it's like um, Indiana Jones. You know, what's the, uh, the grail is not the glorious monument. It's, a, it's the most humble thing you can imagine. It like, it's, it's lost and all the other things. And that's, that's very much the, the story of recovery and the story of life. And so that's I, I, part of what I'm trying to figure out how to do is how to encourage people through that process. You know, to encourage people to be in the chop wood, carry water mode long enough for the miracle to happen. You know, when that happens, 
people are transformed. You can't go back from that. You know, once that transformation takes place, I don't think people can go back. You know, once that psychic change happens, people are there. You know, you guys opened your facility <laughs> in July of this year. Yeah, kind of, kind of. You've been kind of. <laughs> I, it's speaking of monuments. You know, yeah. here I've been working on this business. Um, the plan started three years ago. Yeah. Um, Talk about what that progression was like to what it is today. So a uh, very dear friend and member of my family shot himself in the head. And that was one of the most difficult, um, exhausting, and profound experiences in my life. And from that moment, I knew it's time for me to do something different. I was at a, a kind of at a crossroads in my professional life um, where I had achieved what I wanted to achieve at that point. I was at crossroads in my personal life. And it was time, on some level, what was happening is a merger of those two things. And so I wrote a business plan. It was one of the most um, excruciating experiences in my life. It was awful. I've, um, been, I've been avoiding it for a couple months now. Uh, like, don't listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, the, the final version of my business plan had been through just literally countless number of... Um, and I had people that were tremendous who helped me in that process. Um, my folks who helped edit like so many times that I'm like, I'm starting, uh, surely I'm starting to wear thin on them. It was just a really difficult thing. So I wrote the first business plan. It was that difficult and then threw it out because I took and pitched that business plan to a handful of people. And they're like, this is just too much. There's too much. You got a great idea, but you're asking for too much money. Um, and so what happened was the original plan was this huge monument of a plan. It was going to be a big 80-acre farm, and there was a house, and there was a big thing, and this is just big. You know, mm -hmm. it's this big, huge um, plan. And they said, it's too much. You're asking for too much money. you got to scale it back. And at the time, this picture was so complete in my head. It was like, um, there's too much of your body. you got to take some part off of it. You couldn't like, let go of it. Well, which limb do you want to sever? And I was like, you can't cut my arm off. This doesn't make any sense. So I sat there and I, I considered what parts of the plan I, I didn't like. And, and what ended up happening is I basically took all the things I didn't like about the plan and got rid of them and was left with something that was much more refined and much more in line with what I wanted to do. And it was actually more accessible. So that process took years to get to. It took me a year to find property in Asheville. Um, what were you doing throughout that process? Oh, man, that's a really good question because I quit my job in 2016. And said, I'm going to go do this thing. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, if you had told me that I wouldn't have opened the doors until, fuck, what year is it? 2018. 2018. Right. <laughs> July. Your yeah. first client will come a year and a half from now. I'd lose my mind. Like, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And so one of the things that really, uh, my recovery is, uh, in the past two years, I've hit a point where I'm like, I've, I've arrived at some place. And what that place is, is that I'm simply doing three things, and that's trust God, clean house, and help others. And that's it. That's the central focus of my day. And everything I'm trying to do, everything that I put into my life, I want to make sure that it serves that at some level or another. And so I quit my job, and that's all I did. And somehow I'm, we paid our bills, and I had tremendous times. I had tremendous exchanges, developed tremendous relationships with people. Um, and I've had a really, uh, it's been a really profound time in my life. Um, so that's what happened. I can't explain to you how it happened. Um, I somehow managed to make a living and, you know, found a piece of property in, fuck, I don't even know when it was, but we, we made a deal on the property in October and finally got plans 
delivered to us in March or something. Um, we had the, I'm sorry, we had the permits in March. So it took a long time with the city. You know, it turns out insurance companies and cities, nobody likes the idea of what we're doing. <clears throat> if you tell an insurance company, I want to have drug addicts running the table stuff. Yeah. You got real problems. <laughs> Good luck, hand. buddy. Yeah, yeah. It's uh-huh. a real, like, um, this is not language that fits commonly into the yeah. common conversation. Um, and so we started building in March. In July, the first apprentice showed up, but there was still a huge amount of work to do. And so the first apprentice and the pr- apprentices that have followed have been involved in getting the space where it needs to be, but not not in the sort of day-to-day painting and stuff, but like we've built kitchen cabinets. Uh, we've built kind of an entertainment console and countertops and um, have done a bunch of work. And it's been tremendous because these guys get to see the place kind of mm-hmm. come to life. Um, and so there's a big picture of what this wants to be. Um, the space itself and the experience for people. Uh, one of the things that is is kind of a weird balancing act for me is that it's really important that this making holes not me, that it's something that that people might not ever know my name, and making holes something else because I want it to be bigger than me. I want it to be about a collection of people that can come together, and my job is to create a foundation where that can happen, where people can come together and share their stories and share it in a way that's authentic and exciting and real. You know, so one of the things we do is we have lunch every day. There's an open invitation to literally anybody that wants to show up and eat lunch with us. And so we cook lunch, lunches, you know, to varying degrees of preparation, whether it's sandwiches or, you know, we had uh, one of the apprentices had a birthday on Friday. His family was in town and his mom made just an f- insane meal for us. Was, um, she was a home act teacher for 20 years and she just freaking lit us up it was amazing wow. it was insane the whole shop and it's a workshop it's a wood shop and a metal shop it's typically like a stinky place um and it smelled like like a restaurant it was insane and we eat big meals and so the deal with meals is anybody's welcome to come provided they're willing to just sit around and talk you know and that meal is free i don't i don't i'm not looking for money i'm looking for the opportunity of like what happens when people have a conversation with one another what happens when a guy who's an apprentice gets to sit down with somebody who's who's part of the community, not even in, in recovery, you know, just somebody who's living a life that's a, a neighbor or somebody. On the, yeah. 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 These gentlemen who you, these clients are, do they have any type of experience at all? Like Dude, these guys, like, the guys I got right now um, have varying degrees, but there are lessons on how to use a tape measure. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where we're at. Wow. And so this is not like, this is really not about, and this is a hard thing to describe because a big part of what sells this idea to people is that, oh, it's like folk rehab. You know, that's what people connect with, you know. Because that's all they know. That's all they've heard about. Yeah. And so this is a weird idea what I'm doing. And, and the more I talk about it, the bigger it gets, the more confused people get. And so the fact of the matter is it's got nothing to do with teaching people how to build things. So the build, that's a secondary thing. Like teaching a guy how to use a tape measure is really not a big deal, you know. Anybody can build something. We could have that conversation. You could teach me how to run a tape measure by the time the show's over. I can teach you how yeah. to run a tape measure. And with a little bit of practice, yeah. you might be able to figure it out. <laughs> like, how yeah, many yeah. inches is that? That's four sixteenths. Uh-huh. Like, that's not a number on a tape measure. <laughs> it's a number for me because I counted all those little dots and <laughs> there's is. four of them. Like, all right, we'll, we'll get there to where we know what a quarter uh-huh. is. That's that's in due time. Yeah. There's, not a, there's not a huge press for that. What I'm interested in people is, is people learning how to learn, learning how to ask the right questions, learning how to answer the questions for themselves. Um, and so what the building component of this is, is it's a practical exercise in solving problems mm-hmm. and it's tangible. 
So another big difficulty with recovery, and it's refuge recovery, is any, any of the recoveries, I think, is that we're talking about really big, complicated ideas. Meditation, yeah. and we've talked about this earlier. Meditation's one of them. God's one of them. Um, you know, cleaning your house. All these things are huge ideas. And they carry with them a tremendous amount of dogma. But when you're building a box, like learning how to prepare your space, like you've come in here and you've prepared your space, and this is like, this is, uh, you're showing a skill set here, right? Um, learning how, that's a tangible thing that we can say, all right, we want to prepare our space. We want to have everything in the shop. When you put something down and when you organize something, it needs to be perpendicular to the table and parallel to the thing next to it. That sounds, abs- it sounds absurd. It's a, there's a word for that. It's called knolling, right? So you need to knoll everything. And it sounds crazy, but it's a tangible thing. And so what we talk about is like, this is like life. You know, when you don't take time to prepare the space you're working in, you're falling around the things around you, it's, it's more difficult, it's painful, it's not enjoyable. Dangerous. It's dangerous. It's, you're not going to be successful. Like, this is what we're talking about with recovery. If you don't take time, whatever your mode of recovery is, if you don't take time and dedicate space to that, and you don't clear out the space for that, you're not going to be successful. No different than right now where you're trying to lean over a box of screws so that you can screw something in the side of the wall that you're leaning on a, on a stepladder to do. Like, just take five minutes, move the screws out of the way, put a ladder right here, screw it in. And so those, that's, those are the opportunities I'm looking for, is when a guy is doing some absurd thing because they think it's going to be faster to say, all right, let's look at this. Teachable moment. It's a teachable moment. That's all it is. And so what the building is, is those are my teachable moments. Those are the moments. The moments where somebody screws something up over and over and they get angry. Like, that's what I want. I want guys that don't know how to use a tape measure and lose their mind. Because those are the moments where you can say, all right, well, what is this? You know, where's the, where's the opportunity to learn here? Were you born knowing how to use a tape measure? Because if you go into a lot of job sites, you'll get that idea. You know, some guy, some old timer who is probably not that intelligent, but he's an old timer. And he's like, oh, you know, I've been using this tape measure since, you know, whatever. Fill in the blank, you know. I've cut more things, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you go into the world like this and you're in your 20s and you don't know anything and you feel like a piece of crap, you know, and you hate everybody because everybody's mean, you know. But we weren't born knowing how to use tape measures. That's something we learned how to do. You know, that's, that's a simple little thing, but it's amazing. It's like, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not on the hook to know things I'm not, I, I've never learned. Nobody's on the hook to know things they've never learned. You know, what they're on the hook for is to learn the things in front of them. And so that's part of the conversation too. You've not screwed up if you don't know how to use a tape measure. If you've been directed on how a tape measure is used and you didn't pay attention and you didn't show up for it, then you've got a problem that you need to consider. You still not screwed something up, you know? I love it, man. That's crazy. Um, I want to know, let's see, coming up on, so you have three guys, right? Mm -hmm. Three guys. What's your goal as a one-year program? Are they on like a contract? It's it's so interesting. You know, I committed... When I got sober, I committed to a year at the place I was at. And that was one of the most important things I ever did. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going anywhere, you know, because a huge part of my problem is that my head's in the future and in the past. Um, and so that's what I asked for is a one-year commitment. It's, it's crazy because um, that sounds like a lot of time, you know, and it's not. You know, in the big scheme of things, a year flies by. But, yeah, that's what I want people to show up for a year. You know, I want people to experience all four seasons. You know, we've got a garden out front. I want them to see the evolution of that garden. I want them to eat out of the garden. 
I want them to put the garden to bed in the middle of the winter and still see grains pop up through the snow. Um, I want to see seeds, you know, a little baby seed turn into their salad. Um, I want them to experience all that. And then I want them to go out into the world and, and take what they've learned and be successful. You know, and that, so as we get deeper into their apprenticeship, it's going to be a lot more about the preparation for what the world holds, you know. Do you help, do you assist them at all? Or do you, do you plan to assist them at all? Like when they're transitioning upon? Yeah. I mean, in the sense the that like it, on some level or another, these, these men, the relationship I have with these men is one that uh, an apprentice and a mentor would have. Mm-hmm. So on some level or another, you know, once somebody and I have spent a year together, there's, it's kind of difficult to separate. Yeah. You know, that, at that point, it's not like continuum services or whatever it's called in the, in the industry. It's like I've got a relationship with a dude, and it's important to me that they're successful, you know. And so whatever that looks like, and that will be very different for everybody. But that's why what you're doing is different. To an extent, than what's yeah. out there. Because it's a huge extent. To... Yeah. What type of things do you like, do you want to build, these guys to build? Like what are the, what's the vision for <laughs> creativity? Um, I, I like solving problems. Yeah. I like building things. You know how I know that you do? What is that? Because as soon as you walked in here tonight and I was having problems with this little (laughs) mixer board over here, you immediately started diagnosing the problem. All right, this wire's going over here and this one's going over here. And and like, we're we're totally like messing with it, trying to figure it out together. I love solving problems. And part of the reason I love solving problems is that, um, it implies that nothing's broken forever. You know, that there's, it's just a problem that can be solved. And so I like building things that solve problems. And whether those problems are solving problems for somebody that needs something built or whether those problems are in the actual object itself, um, that's what I enjoy. And I think that's what produces the most opportunities. You know, as far as what guys build, I think everybody, um, the, the intent of what we build is designed to help these people progress through their experience. And, and what we build will reflect what these pe- people need to experience at any given time. Um, and it also reflects what comes to us. You know, I like, um, I like the exchange that happens when you build somebody a piece of furniture. Um, and so I don't like producing things that are um, on somebody's checklist in a house. Yeah. So when somebody's kind of getting near the end and I've got to have a laundry room counter on this and this and this, and which one of those can I put you, fill your initials into so I can check it off the box? I got, I got very little interest in that. And I've done a lot of that and... And the reason I don't have interest in it is because it leaves the, the exchange. The exchange is lost. You know, what I enjoy is the exchange. What I enjoy is knowing that this thing that I'm investing, like an important part of my life in, um, that somebody's going to receive that investment in a way that's going to grow and not just have that be something that collects their knickknacks, you know? And so I, that will be part of what the decision-making process is for me is, you know, how does this contribute to the world at large? You know, how are we contributing to the people that are in the program? How does that contribute to the people who are receiving what it, whatever it is we're making? And, and it's important to me that it, sol- it serves more than one function, that it's not just one thing. You know, I don't want to make things just so this guy can learn how to weld. I want him to weld something that's important and learn through that process. And I'm happy to throw something away if it's not done right, but there's something that happens when you're just like welding something so that you can check something off on the learning how to weld something and actually welding something that's going to go in somebody's house. Like what the whole thought process into that is, is really different. And I think you learn at a different level when it's important what you're making. You know, when it's not important what you're making, it's just like, 
um, it loses some of its potential to teach effectively. How has your personal recovery evolved since you began to create this this brand? This the, just this what I said. Yeah. I've gotten to the point where after twenty years, I've taken the simplest suggestion and made it real, and that's to trust God, clean house, and help others. And that's how my recovery's evolved. Is it's not complicated anymore for me, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's real, like in terms of what my job is, is real simple. And the simpler my job is, my you know, and this this translates into my work. My job at making holes is very simple, and that's to create the foundation. And I've done this in other experiences. We we used to hold this event down in Atlanta every year um, for concrete artisans specifically, and it was called Epic. And it's this thing that hadn't happened since 2016. But guys would come from all over the world and share this moment together. Um, and make concrete and have competitions, and it was a lot of fun. People still remember that fondly, and what my job in that was was to create a place where these people could come and share their stories together. Um, and so that's that taught me a lot, and, and what my job is is to facilitate the place. And if, you know, as cliche as it is, if you build it, they will come. You know, if you create an environment where people can come as they are and share their stories, something happens, you know, and I think that that's... Um, that's lost in a lot of what I see in the day to day is that that opportunity to genuinely share, you know, it's been replaced by Facebook, which is too much busyness. Yeah. There's too much busyness and there's too much just scrolling through that, you you know, and I see conversations. It's interesting. The people that used to come to this event would have intimate relationships with each other. It's interesting to see how they would exchange then and how they exchange with each other on Facebook now, particularly if they have different political viewpoints. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and something is lost that when you sit down and have a conversation, especially when you eat with somebody, when you sit down and share a meal with somebody and you see their work and you're able to exchange on that level, um, it breaks down the boundaries. So these guys who, um, one of the problems I have with recovery, the idea, the word recovery, is that it's an isolationist word. You know, it's basically like I'm in recovery and you're a normal person and, and therefore there's some separation between yeah. us. You know, But when you're engaged with somebody about this thing you made, or this process you're in, there's no real boundaries in that, you know? Lots of people have stories about the things they made and about the stories behind those things that they've made. People have stories about the food they've eaten, all those things where we're no longer separate people. Um, And so my recovery's evolved and I'm trying to do things in a simple way. And so I've got a real simple job in making a whole, and that's to create the foundation, create the place where everybody understands what the parameters are. It's not this big open, like, let's do anything. It's very specific parameters. It's my job to develop and maintain those parameters so that when people show up, they receive what they need. And, and importantly, that people show up, that it creates a place that attracts a large audience of people to come eat lunch with us, to come teach guys how to build whatever it is they're going to teach. And, and it gives artisans an opportunity to exchange that because I think it's one of the things that artisans um, really value is, is you learn more as a teacher than you do as a student. Certainly. Um, and so providing guys with that kind of opportunity. And so in my own personal life, it's really a matter of just the simple, the simple work of trusting God, clean the house and help on others. And so it's really important that I'm at that place because I got teenagers. And so uh, if my life was super complicated in my head outside of that, I would really be off my game for what is you know, bound to be a challenging couple of years at home. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt about that, brother. Um, we were talking a little bit before the podcast about the business side of recovery. Mm-hmm. 
And you had a unique perspective that really intrigued me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way the conversation got started, we initially you were asking me about like what my goals were and kind of like what the podcast were, where the podcast was going and kind of those sorts of things. And, um, and then I kind of, we started talking about making whole and I was asking you about like the funding side and what, what exactly operationally how you guys um, function and you have a unique perspective. And I think that there's, when you go about the business side of the things, the way that you have started to, I think that it shows that kind of real authentic purpose of why you're there. Right. So one of the things that's interesting, I think specifically part of what you're talking about is that making holes an LLC, it's not a non-for-profit, which is unusual in the community. You know, people, totally. people make things not for profit. And both of those things are about how, are about a relationship to how funding exists. And that relationship is partially about how it's viewed, but it's more importantly, it's about what work is required to receive money. And so the first most important thing in this conversation is that um, money is certainly a skewed topic in recovery. You know, one of the things when I was doing the research for the business plan, at the time I was doing it, the top 10 most expensive words on Google, which are the most expensive words in the world, were something like six of those 10 were related to addiction recovery. Wow. It is such, Dude. it's an insane thing. To the point that Google quit doing Google AdWords recently. Yeah about addiction because people are basically it's like become this criminal enterprise on some level and so it's a it's a real complicated conversation to get into even some of those people are running not-for-profit so it's not necessarily uh, the structure of the the corporation is not necessarily about whether um, this is about altruism or about profit right and so as I talk to lawyers and I talk to people about what it is I wanted to do there's a couple of really specific parameters I have. And one of them is I've got a really clear picture of what I'm building. And I don't trust any entity that's not involved in that picture to dictate what that looks like. And so that's been one of the clear standards for me all along is I'm trying to build something. And so at a younger time in my life, that would have been coming from a place of arrogance of like, I don't want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Or I don't want you to find out that I don't know what, what I'm doing or something like that. And now it's like... I don't want you to know that it's an experiment. R- right. I don't, <laughs> And it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, don't want you to know, I don't want you to know that I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And there's an element where I don't. Um, but there's another element where I've got a real clear picture. And part of the reason I'm protective of that is when I share that with people, it takes so long for a lot of people to understand what I'm driving at that I realize I've got to protect this until it's complete enough for somebody to see it. So as I'm going and talking about how to structure this as a... Cor- corporately, um, that's part of the conversation I'm having with lawyers. The other part of this is a conversation I had with my father, um, probably in my 20s, where I had real hang-ups about money and about the value of money and about the role money plays in life. And he said, you've got all these hang-ups about money. All money is is stored options. And what it did is it took the value judgment out of that and the evil corporations and things like this. And what it did is it put it on me. You know, what's important about money for me is how do I use it? What am I driving at, right? And so me feeling good about money is going to boil down to what am I doing with it? So this business is a is an LLC. It's privately funded. Guys pay tuition to come there, and that's what funds our ability to do whatever we want to do. 
Um, the other thing is, as we sell furniture, that will fund scholarships yeah. for guys to come in as well. Um, the whole objective of this is that we maintain options in how we show up and treat people. And so that's the point at the end of the day, is I want to have options in how I treat any given individual because everybody's so profoundly different yeah. at the it, end of the it day. It allows you, you the power to make the decisions on how you conduct business. Correct. And so one of the things is, that, and, and this is actually one of the, I suppose, limiting factors, which is also a good checks and balances, is that this isn't scalable at this time. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that there is a ceiling on, you know, this isn't just something I'm going to run away with and, and, you know, retire to the Bahamas. You know, this is a project I'm very specific about. There's investors that I want to see get returns on, on what they've invested to make this a reality. It's been a very expensive thing to build. Um, building in Asheville is not inexpensive. <laughs> building in general is not inexpensive. Um, we had to jump through a lot of hoops that were really expensive hoops to jump through so that, that so we would be up to code on everything and so it would be legitimate and the insurance um, isn't cheap either. And so, you know, my... my that just shows a lot of a lot of people who believe in you and believe in this vision that you have. Right. Right. And also believe that there's, there's more to be told about the story and that there's more in making things and in that sort of human connection than, than maybe meets the eye. And so that's, you know, the general business sense is that I want to have the finances produce um, an environment where we can do what needs to be done effectively. And so, you know, that's, I'm certainly not getting rich off of it. But at the same time, it, at the point that this is wildly successful and I get rich, I'm not going to be offended by that either. So, <laughs> But that's not my motivation. You know, There's a part of me that believes that um, going into a venture like this, it could be really financially lucrative. And what that means is that it provides everybody who is invested in that the opportunity to continue to produce valuable, important things for the world. And so what I do know about the people who've invested in this is that um, that's how they use their money. They use their money to contribute to change in the world. Um, and that's how I use my, I don't have money, so that's how I use my time at least. And my, my intent is trying to find a way to contribute to change in the world. And so that's, that's how we do it. And it creates some difficulties because it makes it more difficult for people to just give us money and not have the tax benefits of that, I suppose. Um, the flip side is, is they can give us money and end up with a piece of furniture, Something which is return. even yeah. freaking cooler, right? Yeah. A high, a beautiful piece that you know. Right. These guys have labored on over and over. Again. Yeah, and these guys, I'll tell you what we did. Uh, you can check us out on our Instagram or, or Facebook. It's making whole at making whole. Um, and these guys build these kitchen cabinets that are just they're freaking nice. Yeah. And these are guys that are like, and and so the the work that they're doing is like aesthetically nice. Work. For f- coming from first time. Right, even Builder. not first time. I mean, that's the thing is that like this is work that I would be happy for somebody else to yeah. produce. It wasn't new at this, you know. Wow. And so they've got good guidance. We got, um, we we have a fellow named Andy Ray, who's a renowned author in the woodworking world. is phenomenal woodworker. is great teacher, really great teacher. Who's with us regularly, um, and who's bringing his private studio into the wow. shop as well, which is a tremendous resource and asset for us. Um, and he's, so he, we've got guys at this level, you know, this dude's, um, written, um, some of the most, some of the best selling woodworking books that have been written in America. Um, you know, he's there every day. And so these guys can ask these, you know, this, this caliper of, um, craftsman questions. And I've got, you know, the people that I'm lucky enough to have as friends are really talented people. And a lot of them are phenomenal teachers and they're looking for opportunities to come and teach, come and hang out. 
Um, and I'm really excited about that, you know, because uh, the amount of talent from all over the world of people who've shown interest in coming and being a part of this, any capacity they can be, is like, it's exciting. And it's really exciting to get somebody come from France just to teach um, dudes, you know, that's exciting stuff. What, um, do you have a cap on how many you could? 10 is the kind of a limit on apprentices in theory. We're not okay. there yet, but, um, the size studio, it's an 8,000 square foot space. We got a 5,000 square foot studio and my previous business was 5,000 square feet. We had 12 staff and it was never uncomfortable in there, mm -hmm. but it, it was definitely, that was kind of at the limit. And so, um, we'll have a handful of people at any given time that are staff or who are teachers. So 10 seems to be. Um, the cap on that but that will the other thing that will happen is is as we get to that point at 10 there will be guys moving on and how that transition looks and what kind of relationship they have um, to us and to how we can help them leverage themselves out into the world will be an evolution and so that can mean some type of collaboration um, one of the things I'm, I'm really intrigued by is the idea of producing product lines that potentially these guys can take and make businesses out of in the future yeah. and how that kind of stuff interacts with what we're doing is um, will be a conversation as that comes up. You know, that's, that's in theory right now because we're not there, but that's the kind of theory I have is that when you get this kind of level of talent and creativity coming to a place, things happen. You know, it's one of the things my old boss used to tell me is like, you go out and shake the trees, things happen. And so I trust that when this much talent ends up in one place, over this time in this type of environment with this type of structure and in some cases lack of structure. Um, and that's part of not being a nonprofit is that, that the lack of structure means that we can do anything. Mm -hmm. um, is that real creativity can be, um, can be had there. So, you know, telling a guy to come teach is that you don't have to have this very specific class curriculum on how to use a block plane. I want you to come teach what you enjoyed learning the most in whatever format you want to do that. And I believe when people are given that license and that respect and also that sort of charge to, to be at their best, um, that amazing things happen when you basically give people that type of license. If somebody wanted to inquire on getting involved. They would go to my website and send me an email. Uh-huh. That's and, it. And then you'll start the process with them. Right. I'll make them answer really difficult questions. Yeah. They'll have to do a full physical examination plastic gloves and all hold on in the shop yeah in the shop in for the sure. shop yeah yeah we got pliers and stuff part yeah. of that examination no yeah. and it's uh you, you know there's there's a tuition that's involved mm -hmm. um it's my intent to have scholarships as one of the guys who's there currently a scholarship we've got effectively two full scholarships that we can give at any given time wow. it, it, it a full capacity so right now we're, we're tapped on scholarships but um you know, we're looking for both people to show up and people who want to help see people get better. You know, it's it's uh, fifty five hundred bucks a month. Guys get paid fifteen hundred bucks a month in salary. Um, it's not inexpensive. It's also when you look at it in the context of tuition to a college or you know a lot of the halfway houses out there. It's not also not inaccessible. Um, and right now, you know, one of the things a business plan did for me, I I did it because people told me I had to. Um, one of the things that was that happened in the process of that is there's extensive financials that we did. And these projections, which at the time felt like lies to me, because how can I see what's going to happen two years from yeah. now? Um, it turns out that those those actually came to be profoundly true, um, to the point that it's spooky, almost like it was almost like fortune telling at the beginning. 
And so we didn't really know at the beginning, you know, all the pricing was based on these sort of speculations. And it turns out that it's pretty much spot on, you know, have staff there full time and to be, you know, there's a lot of the work we're not going to be able to produce where even the work we produce, the pace at which it comes out when people don't know what they're doing, um, it's really difficult to make up. Um, even if you're selling furniture at a high end, you know, it's difficult to make that up if, if we're not in like go, go, go mode all the time. And so that's how the thing's funded is effectively the tuition pays for the salaries of the guys who are teaching and launching these kind of things. I got to ask, man, tell me about the, tell me about the little owl. Oh man. So this, the whole story is on my website. Um, makinghole.com. Makinghole.com. And there's a little tab at the top that says little owl. And it's, it's the, uh, the full story of this, but the, the suicide that I mentioned earlier, um, I went, went down after hearing about the suicide and, um, spent the better half of a week, um, cleaning out this guy's house and, and being a part of the ceremonies and the, the sort of fallout. And, um, there were some other things that happened that were, uh, it was just a, it was one of the more difficult times in my life. And I, I drove home from Athens to Asheville late at night. And by the time I got home, I was absolutely exhausted. I was, uh, I was at wit's end. I was really at the point, I was really at the end of what I had to give. You know, I was drained. It's probably the best, best way to describe it. So I woke up the next day and, uh, woke up in the morning. I was kind of staggering around and really struggling to kind of get my wits about myself and, figure out how I was going to spend my day and all this. And there's this bunch of commotion outside my front door. It was crows going crazy. And so I went out front, and these crows were actually on the top of my house, on my roof, um, making all this racket. I think they were fighting with blue jays, which they like to do in my neighborhood. And right down on my front porch, not five feet from me, is this owl. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's this owl doing? It's the middle of the day. It's like 10 o'clock, and I got home early, slept late. And I go outside, and the owl doesn't go anywhere. And so then I sit down next to this owl, and this owl is literally like me and this owl are sitting next to each other on my front porch. And I'm having, it's just a trippy thing, you know. And so if, when you live in Asheville for a while, what happens is that you, you become cynical about a, a lot of things, like spiritual things like crystals and spirit animals <laughs> and this kind of stuff, right? Uh, because everybody's got a spirit yeah. animal. Uh, and everybody's, nobody's spirit animal is a roach. Uh, and so at some point you're like, I I'm not buying it. Right. Um, so I'm skeptical, but at the same time, I believe that the world is infinite, that we're in an infinite universe and there's things that happen that I can't explain. So I'm in the between these things, healthily cynical and also open to the idea of infinite possibilities. And I'm hanging out with this owl. Wait, this is insane. You know? and owls have a real interesting story behind them when you look back to the mythology of owls it's mm -hmm. real deep and dark there's a lot of darkness about the owls but there's also like a lot of afterlife and wisdom and all these different things they got great vision at night and they're you know crazy animals they're associated with death in virtually every story um, and usually they're associated like when you see an owl you're about to die and the idea is, is they get you you don't hear them you don't hear them coming so anyway, I'm sitting out with, and now this is getting to the point where I'm like with this owl for like a long time, maybe 20 minutes. Me and this owl are sitting here and his head's like spinning around in circles and he's like looking at me and blinking and then looking around. Just hanging out. Just hanging out. And I'm like, finally get the idea that this, I'm telling myself a story because I want to make this situation easier. And this owl has got to be hurt. 
Because that's the only logical explanation in the material world of why an owl is hanging out with a dude in the middle of the day. Because that shit don't happen. Mm-hmm. The moment I have that thought, this owl turns around, like does the 360 with his head, bounce, 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 and flies away. And I'm like, well, that's an insane. So then I go inside, I'm like trying to get my wits about me, and I'm like reading up on it, drinking my coffee, and trying to figure it out. It's like, man, that was intense, you know? And, and so then I go, it, it, it like, um, it comes maybe two or three o'clock, and it's time to get the kids from school. And my wife's like, do you want to go get the kids? And I'm, I'm off work, you know, I've taken, taken off work, and I don't get to pick my kids up a lot. And I'm like, fresh air is going to do me some good, and I'll get out and do that. It'll be great. And so where we pick the kids up from school is right next to my son's school, and my daughter walks through the woods to come where we are. And uh, so we're hanging out there, and... Um, like all these kids are around and all this stuff. And my daughter like comes up out of the woods, like kind of like bouncing, you know, cause that's, um, she, she would have been maybe 10 at the time, 10 or 11. Um, and she just bounces up out of the woods with like all this enthusiasm and like boundless energy of a kid. And on the center of her forehead is a sticker of an owl. And how, how long after this morning experience? So a this is like hours? three o'clock. Okay. <clears throat> three or four this hours happens after? at 10 o'clock in yeah. the morning. I've not told anybody about this at this point. Nobody knows this story. You didn't mention it to your wife? No, nobody knows the story. And she pounces up with an owl on her forehead. And I said, what the fuck do you have an owl on the forehead for? Which, you know, is a good indicator that I use foul language with my kids. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, I I said, I I, I probably didn't say that. I said something to that effect. That was Mm -hmm. the gist of it. And she says, I don't know. Somebody just put it on my head. That's it. And so... I still don't know how I interpret all this stuff, but I know it was significant. It was real and it was evidence that um, there's things that happen in this universe that are beyond my explanation. It also means that when I open myself up, and in some to some extent, that trust God, clean house, and help others was very much my mantra through the cleaning of this house and being present for the funeral and 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 all the things that I did during that time, that was like, you know, when I left Asheville the day I heard about it, my wife said, just go do what you got to do to be helpful and let us know how we can help. She's tremendous in that way. She's got, like, that's her spirit. And so she charged me with that. That's what I'm going down to do. And so this had been, in, in a physical way, as much as I had ever given myself in some regards, um, to the world at large and I was just trusting the process. And so in some respects, like this thing was like, um, an indication that there's, that that's important and that the world receives that in a certain way. It was a validation, I guess, in some regards. Um, and it's cool. And then this owl has shown up through all these other stories since then, you know, it's funny you asked me this, asked me about this. I suppose I could have figured that out last night. I was with a close friend and, and we were watching this video um, of owl, an owl falling, flying across a soundstage. You know, they have a pigeon that flies across the soundstage and then a um, peregrine falcon that flies across and then an owl, and they were doing the audio of their wings. And if oh, you haven't wow. seen this, you got to no, check it out. It's, totally it's insane. Do. It's a beautiful video. It's BBC does it. It's a black backdrop, and they've got, like, super high-quality mics mm-hmm. along this whole flight path, and they listen to the sound. You know, it's just something about those creatures that's just just pure grace and beauty, you know? And also, like, um, I really like 
how much their stories carry this huge amount of darkness and this huge amount of wisdom and this huge amount. One of the stories I read was from one of the native communities where the owl figure was both the one that received you into death, but was also the giver of life. You know, so it's this sort of paradox, this sort of duality in this creature, you know. And there's something about the darkness of that animal that I think is missing in a lot of our daily conversations. You know, it's like um, America's a pretty bland Puritan place in a lot of regards, you know, um, whether it be food or conversation or taste or whatever, you know. And I think having a little bit of that bitterness in the conversation is something that I always really gravitate towards. Jeremy French, you are a badass, my friend. I tell you what, bro, you are something else, dude. That that's awesome. Um, if somebody wanted to support making whole, what would be their best? That's an interesting question. I I, I think their best order some furniture. Wow, I don't know. You know, I think what I would would I would call anybody to do. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not in the business of asking people to give money. You know, mm-hmm. it's important to me that whatever, if somebody gives something to this, that they receive something in return. Now, what that is, is, um, just, is a personal exchange. So what I would say is that people just ask the question, you know, get involved, send me an email, call me on the phone and say, come have lunch, come have lunch. That's really a great way to do it. I also know that, you know, we've received some support recently that just showed up in the mail. A guy I hadn't talked to in years and just sent a check that was a tithing. It was a religious thing for him, which was really just, um, it's a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing for me. I'm not a religious person, although I really value, um, the value that religion adds when it's that kind of value, Mm -hmm. you know, when it's not just politics and people freaking out and losing the plot, when people are really, you know, expressing, um, gratitude and support, in just a genuine and authentic way. It was just, it was a real, a real treat. And so um, what I value about the way he did that is it was his, his own expression of this is how I want to help. And so I, I appreciate when people want to help kind of come as they are, you know? And so um, whether that help is financial and this thing needs finances to go, sure. you know, we got to pay bills and this is um, a really expensive thing um, or whether that's in the support of, um, coming and cooking a meal with us. One of the things that's important for me is that um, guys learn how to cook while they're there. And the best meals are homegrown meals. Absolutely. You know, when somebody comes and shares a meal about that their grandmother cooked for them, like that's priceless to me. And so those are aspects. That to me gets me more excited. The money part of this is a practical side of this. I need it. Um, The business needs it. Um, And I'm grateful for it. But when somebody comes and really genuinely gives it themselves... Um, and gives it their time and kind of passes the story along, um, that's priceless. And that's something that that I really value as well. Cool, man. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, dude, This has dude. been so fun. It has been a blast. I would like to... I'm going to talk to Caleb, and I would like to come out and have lunch with you guys sometime. Oh, hell yeah. Maybe... You know what we should do? We should do a, a live podcast? broadcast. I'll totally do it, dude. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm I'll all totally, about it. I'll totally, I would love to do that. Maybe Here's we'll, what we got to do. Yeah. I don't know. Is, is uh, JP's surely not. Let's. I'm, I'm going to do the thing that I said I wouldn't do and get on my phone real quick. You said you're going to give some shout outs too, man. I'm going to give some shout outs. And the one shout I'm going to give, I gave a shout out to my mom. Mm-hmm. That was the most important one. Um, she's a trooper and she might still be watching. She's probably the only one watching. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's after nine. 
It's after nine, and and she's probably asleep, <laughs> but she's watching. And it, as, as I said this, she just woke up and yeah. oh god, god, no, I'm awake, I'm awake. Um, but if JP is listening, um, JP Kennedy is doing a really cool project for anybody out there who's listening or tuning in. Um, he's doing an oral, oral history of the heroin epidemic in Western North Carolina, and his approach to that and the way he's doing it, I think, is just phenomenal. And so maybe what we can do is collaborate with him as well and just have a, a conversation at the lunch table, dude, which I would think I, think I would, would be love awesome. to do that. Dude. We're doing it. Let's I do would it. totally love to do that. He came over and paid me a visit last week sometime at SEC and we got a chance to sit down and talk and share my story with him for about an hour uh, that afternoon. He's just an awesome cat. He is an awesome cat. So if JP, if you hear this now, if you're on here or if you, you tune into this at any point, um, leave a link in the comments maybe to what you're doing, if yep. that's a possibility. I don't, your, I don't know how to do that. Your mom is Carolyn. My, mom. What's she's, up, mom? She said she's listening. Oh, come <laughs> on. Did, you, did yeah. I wake you up? Yeah. Come on. She said she's listening. So <laughs> Yeah, so be on the lookout for a NC Raw making whole and Johnny P. Kennedy col co collaboration. Yeah, JP, you, you basically just got wrangled into yeah, that. Yeah, you You're got drugged into that. that. I can see us us three sitting down and having a, a good conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll be up so. to that. And the other guy gets a gets a shout out who you've reached out to is Matt Nannis is doing a, a great thing. He's got a new new venture in town um, called Pivot Point. Um, that you, you give him a look. He's taking guys out to the woods and and providing them with a real and authentic experience and. He's uh, he's joined us a little bit, and so maybe he can. We'll have a party. I mean, if if you bring microphones, there's not a shortage of people wanting to hear themselves talk. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, dude, he he seems like an awesome cat. I've kind of briefly exchanged emails with him back and forth, and um, I would totally love to do that. So, well, I appreciate it, sir. It's, oh, it's been, been a, my pleasure. It's dude. been a blast. Thank you guys for listening to NC Raw North Carolina Recovery Always. The NC Raw crew would like to thank today's musical contributor's rival, whose work can be found by visiting his YouTube, SoundCloud, or Facebook at Rival727, and my man Logan Bruce, whose work is available on SoundCloud and Facebook by searching Logan Bruce Music. All of our content is available by visiting our website at www.ncraw.life. If you're interested in anything that Jeremy has going on, give his website a visit at makingwhole.com. Reach out, let him know you're coming to have lunch. You got an open invitation from him. Sure did. That's W-H-O-L-E. W-H-O-L-E. Whole. 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 Um, and while you're at our website, go ahead and drop your email in the subscription box. Cause every time we publish a new episode, we'll send you an email with links to listen on our Spotify, Apple podcast and Google podcast sites. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WNC raw. We're going to close the show out tonight with a song from my man, Logan Bruce. It's his latest work. The song is titled shadows. Thank you guys for tuning in. Yay! And these shadows are crawling on the walls and they are watching. I can feel their eyes behind me. 
Drawing pictures of me falling Why won't these shadows fade? Why won't these shadows fade? Let the world in, take a trip to my mind Before these thoughts go missing in time All the years I got lost, always wishing I'd find That external cause for the feelings inside But the no surprise, I never cashed that check One hell of a ride Till we crashed and wrecked every one of them lied Like every last one left with the tears in my eyes While the blackness crept, so here's all the rest That told me I'd be nothing And when life gets hard, boy, you'll keep on running Why the hell you keep singing, boy, to sleep that strumming Cause there's no overcoming just what you're becoming She said, keep on bunting Why you swinging for the fences, kid? You keep striking out you just being pretentious, I know it's breaking your heart But when I said it, I meant it, you'll never make it to the top You just stuck in the trenches, but not to mention That obsession with depression, standing staring at the mirror, crying at your reflection Just give up on your dreams, you'll never get the attention You'll never be first team, or even audible mention Cause that's the lesson, that every pass is a weapon So here's everyone that told me, keep on stepping Now I won't turn my back like the city I'm repping I'm standing up, looking down at the stairway to heaven and these shadows are crawling on the walls and they are watching I can feel their eyes behind me Drawing pictures of me falling Why won't these shadows fade? Why won't these shadows fade? Yeah, she told me, pipe down, why you making that racket? Why the hell are you even trying? Chances are it won't happen. Dude, it's too far up. And in your mind, you imagine, but don't nobody want to hear you mix singing with rapping. You hear that no one's clapping. We all expect you to quit like it's 2008 and you just starting to slip. So wake up, 10 beers, quitting that scholarship. And I wake up 10 years and you just starting to wish. But this is our last kiss, I know I promise forever But this ain't no fairy tale, now we ain't better together I know I swore I'd never leave, they say never say never Cause all your silly little dreams ain't worth the trouble or effort So I wrote you this letter, cause I can't say it in person But for too damn long, you've been too uncertain One day you can't get out of bed, the next day you determined You blame the wolf for your hurting, but you're your own worst burden And keep that candle burning if you're alone in the dark, staring straight at the shadows will teach you who you are. They say the darkest nights, they bring the brightest stars. But your heart's not in the fight, you help ignite these scars. So why's it so damn hard? Why you living in regret with the world on your shoulder like you refuse to forget? You play it over in your head like you rewind the cassette. But all these shadows on the wall are just your silhouette. And these shadows are crawling on the walls and they are watching I can feel their eyes behind me Drawing pictures of me falling Why won't these shadows fade? Why won't these shadows fade? And if the third time's a charm, then why the hell won't you listen? Boy, that stupid guitar won't give you what you've been missing. You tell the world that you're clean. You got another addiction. You diagnosing yourself and filling out the prescription like you just sitting and wishing. Praying you get all the fame. And somewhere off in the distance, say, I'll remember your name. These sunny days ain't instant duty for getting the rain. One day your entire existence will be alone on that stage like it's the top of the eighth. 
you're all alone on the mound And all the confidence is fake, you drop behind an account It starts fading away, like every face in the crowd Cause now you're ten years late, and you're so down on the ground And there ain't no one around, you gotta stand up to fight Dude, these shadows on the wall, they've been you the whole time Just look at this song, these rhymes are in your mind You say you're caught in the dark, but every shadow needs light And damn, you always been bright but you created the darkness, blaming the ghost from the past For all the times you were heartless, so you just pack up and run And wind up back where you started pointing the gun at the target Where all the shadows are darkest